Parshas Vishalach. The man is the most unusual story of antiquity. You can search, but you won't find anything like it in the history of our people, or Lahavdil, in the annals of the nations. That a nation of millions should be fed every day with lechem minashamayim, food that falls from the sky? It was something to remember. The Rambam declares the falling of the man to be the most unique miracle of our past. He says that the greatest of miracles described in the Torah is the stay of the Am Yisrael in the wilderness for 40 years with the daily supply of man. The stupendous spectacle of a mysterious food falling from the sky and descending upon the camp for 40 years was such an outstanding miracle that it never occurred to the falsifiers to even attempt such a claim. None of the provocateurs ever dreamed of concocting such a story. They wouldn't dare. You know, liars have to be very careful. They can't be reckless with their claims because they want to build a system, a castle in the air, that will last for a little bit at least. And therefore, they say things that you can't disprove. It's a saying, if you want to tell lies, make sure to tell a far-off things. That's why when that man, the one they called the Nazarene or JC, when he was asked by the Chachomim, show us miracles, he said, I don't show miracles to wicked men. Wicked men, you know, means people who have seichel. This happened once and it happened again. They asked him to prove them. They asked him to prove himself. Look, your followers are claiming you did miracles. Two harlots and some people who couldn't read or write. Those were his witnesses. And so the sages came and said, Look, such witnesses are not reliable. We're here now. Show it to us. So he said, To wicked people, to a wicked generation, I will vouch safe. I will show no signs. Because he knew to whom to show signs. To a few gullible people, to the lower element of society, who will believe anything? And if you'll ask me about Muhammad, Muhammad also produced many miracles, only that there was nobody around to see them. In his tent, all by himself, with nobody to see, that's where he was a great miracle worker. Miracles for illiterates, and miracles in tents. That's all that the falsifiers would dare claim. But nobody among the nations of the world even tried to invent such a story like the man, because the more witnesses you have, the more you have to be careful if you try to put something over on people. But not only is the man unequaled in the annals of the nations, Lahavdil, it's unequaled in our own history. There never was anything remotely resembling it. The man stands out as the miracle of our history. The man was witnessed not just by a few people and not even Lahavdil by 70 Zakene Yisroel. It was witnessed by a few million people. And not only they witnessed it, but everybody got a sample too. Every man and woman, every boy and girl approached the man and tasted it. You know, there's an old Indian trick whereby a conjurer takes a rope and he throws it up and the rope remains stiff. And then he climbs up the rope and disappears at the top. And then he comes down again. It's a famous Indian trick. Only that the magician is very careful that nobody should approach that rope. No sampling allowed. 
Sometimes you might go to a performance and they have a magician for an entertainer. So when he wants to show a trick, he might take something out of a hat. Let's say he takes an apple out of the hat. So it would be a good idea to taste the apple to see if it's a real apple. It could very well be some sleight of hand or some optical illusion. But the man was something altogether different. It was a demonstration that was witnessed by millions and it was eaten by them too. They picked it up and they put it in their mouths. And it didn't happen just once. It happened every day for 40 years. For 40 years, day after day, the people ate the man. B'Shalach. And therefore, you can be sure that they became so excited over the man, it was something never to forget. Let's say, suppose you got up tomorrow morning and you looked out into your backyard and you saw a white fluffy frost on the ground in the summertime. So you went out and you said, Man, what's this business? Man means, what is it? Imagine you wanted to know. So you pick it up. You take it into your hands and it doesn't smell bad. So you decide to taste it. Of course, you wouldn't do that because it needs a hechsher on it. You don't know who left it there. But imagine you tasted it and it tastes pretty good. It tastes like tzapichis in devash. Whatever a tzapichis is, we don't know. But sapichis bidavash is something dipped in honey. And if you take it inside to your kitchen and you make a latke out of it, so tamo betam lishada shaman, it tastes like a pleasant latke, a sweet pancake. Now when you discover that, you wouldn't keep the secret to yourself. You'd rush into the shtibel or into the yeshiva and you'll tell everybody what happened. Even the janitor you would tell. Of course, they'd think you're crazy. But you'd continue shouting, come and see it yourself. And you wouldn't stop until they followed you. Now a tremendous experience like that, when it happens to a whole nation together, doesn't go away without leaving a lasting effect. The man left an impression that was stamped on the character of our nation forever. You can't have a nation that eats lechem min for 40 years in such a manner and it should just pass by. Oh no! The nace of the man still reverberates among us till this day. And therefore, we're going to study the subject just a little bit. We won't do justice to the subject at all, but at least something will try to speak about it. The first thing is to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the man not only for that generation. They were commanded to put away some of the man in the Mishkan as a Mishmeres for the future generations. B'Shola. And not just anywhere in the Mishkan. It was placed in the holiest part of the Mishkan, right near the Aron in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. So we see that the man was given as a testimony for all generations so that they should remember this remarkable phenomenon that happened to our people. That food fell from the sky every day for 40 years for a nation of millions. Now the fact that the man was kept as a testimony demonstrates that Hashem wants us to think about that nace we see that it's a system of the Torah to put the man into our heads, that it's our duty to remember the man. Hashem wants us to think about the man and to talk about it. Now that's a new idea to most people, to talk about the man. Yes, we're expected to be aware constantly of the man that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Actually, one of the most important reasons the man fell was so that we should talk about it. Every day we say it. 
Praise Hashem. Proclaim His name and make His deeds known among the people. It means that Hashem's miracles are given to us primarily for the purpose so that we should constantly reiterate them in our minds. And not only to think about them, but Kiru Bishmo. We should speak about them as well. We're expected to speak about the wonders of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Kiru Bishmo means call out in His name. To whom should you call out? To anybody who will listen. Did you ever stop and speak to your neighbor about how Hashem sent us food every day for 40 years? Almost 15,000 days of man. You're embarrassed to talk to your neighbor about that? So speak about it to your wife. At least to your children, you should speak about it. It's so important to speak about how HaKadosh Baruch fed our forefathers for 40 years with food from the sky. That you should search out people who are willing to listen. Now we have certain things that are intended as reminders, but it's a pity that we don't utilize them enough. Even those symbols of the man that we do practice become meaningless when they are ignored. We go through the motions, but we don't put our minds to think about what we're doing. Let's say when you come home on Friday night and you see two chalas on a white tablecloth, and they're covered also by a white cloth on top. So you should stop and use this glorious opportunity. It's like that for a good reason. It's intended to be a symbol of the man. The man fell between two clean white tablecloths. That's how it fell every day. There was shikvatatal, a hoarfrost. It means a layer of frozen dew on the ground. And it was white, white as linen. And on top of the man was another layer of white frost. And the man was in between the two sanitary cloths. And it was preserved, nice and fresh. That's why we put a white cloth above the chalas and a white tablecloth underneath the chalas. That's the significance. But nobody thinks about it. Or they rarely do. Why don't you try it next time? Don't just go to the table without thinking about this symbolism. When you come to the Shabbos table and you see the two chalas that are covered with a cloth, why don't you stop for a few seconds and think about that? Better yet, tell your family about it too. Don't worry if your child laughs at you. Say it anyhow. Say it anyhow. And not only once. Every Shabbos you can say it. Don't think that it doesn't go into their heads. Even little children who seem to ignore what you're saying. They're human beings. So it goes in. I still remember what was said to me when I was two years old. You'll be surprised. It's not a waste of time at all. Those seeds of Amuna that you plant in other people's minds are going to remain there and someday they might bear beautiful fruit. The truth is, even on Wednesday, you don't need to wait for Shabbos. When you sit down on a Wednesday morning to eat your breakfast or your supper Wednesday night and you see a piece of bread, you should have a picture of the man in your head. Why not? Bread is no less of a miracle than the man. Absolutely. How does bread come out of the earth? It's a nace. I'll tell you what I think. I think it's more of a nace than the man that fell in the midbar. At least the man came out from the sky. Why shouldn't it fall from the sky? But that wheat should come out of the earth. Nobody can really explain that. That large stalks of wheat should grow out of dirt. It's a nace. Nisei nisim. From some earth and some air and a little bit of sunshine, bread is created. How does air become bread? It's a nace. 
Carbon dioxide in the air combines with the sunshine. Sunshine? Yes, we're eating sunshine when we eat bread. That's what it is. Sunshine mixes with the carbon dioxide and with some water and chlorophyll, the green part of the plant, and it combines to make starch. That starch is the wheat. That's the bread. That's the chalev chita, the fat of the wheat. It comes out of thin air. That's what your bread is. It's carbon dioxide. Because if you take a piece of bread and burn it, it turns black. Only the carbon remains. So bread is carbon. Where does carbon come from? The carbon was in the air, in the form of carbon dioxide. And how does it come out of the air? It's a miracle how how the wheat plant is capable of extracting the carbon dioxide from the air and depositing the carbon in its cells. After all, carbon dioxide is only three parts in 10,000 in the air. And the plant is standing here, sucking the carbon dioxide from the air around it. In a minute, it has exhausted all the carbon dioxide around it. And so the plant should die. But no! HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the wind. Without the winds, the world couldn't exist. Tainis. The wind keeps the air moving. So as the plant exhausts the carbon dioxide from the air around it, the wind pushes some new air into place. And now the plant has a new source of carbon dioxide. And the air keeps on moving. Nisei nisim. It means that when you feel a breeze, that's a reminder that your bread is being made for you. I don't want to take up the time and tell you how many actual nisim there are in making a food. It's so exciting that you'll think it's exaggerated. You won't even believe me. It's just a guzma, you'll think. But the truth is that this great wonder of bread is a composite of so many complex miracles that we have to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu not for the one mace of bread. We have to thank him for hundreds and hundreds of nisim. Now when we say hundreds... I'm underestimating. Actually, you need millions of details cooperating one with the other in order to make the bread. And so, if you can take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and create from it bread, it's a miracle that is just as astonishing when man fell from the sky. So now the Yetzir Huddle will come and whisper in your ear, well, it's the process of photosynthesis. The sunlight is used to synthesize the food material from the carbon dioxide in the water. It's just the absorption of nutrients from the earth by the seminal roots and the nodal roots, and so on, and so on. So do you think that if you use big words from the science books to describe the processes, that it makes it any less of a miracle? Not at all. Studying those processes only makes you even more aware of how many miracles are needed to make the wheat kernel grow. Only that we see bread every day, so our minds become dulled to the great Nisim. If the man had happened only once, ooh, would that have been something? Only because it happened for 40 years, so so they became accustomed to it, and it stopped being an ace. They became so habituated that I'm sure many of them forgot that it was a miracle. Some people were born to the man, and they never knew any other food. Imagine a child born in the Midbar. From the very beginning, he saw it come down every day. As far as he was concerned, that's how it has to be. You know when he'd be surprised? When he'd walk out of the camp and visit the land of Midian, or the land of Moab, and he would see that the man doesn't come down. 
That's when he'd be surprised. What's wrong with this place? There's no man coming down. You know, when they came to Eretz Canaan and they saw food coming out of the ground, to them, that was a big nace. Food coming out of the ground. Look, it's a nace. Food is coming out of the ground. They thought food comes only from the clouds. Because really, it's all a nace. Only that habit makes you not notice. Even the biggest nace, if it happens every day for years and years, you tend to ignore it. And the man was even more commonplace than rain. It doesn't rain every day, but the man came down every day. And even the biggest miracle, when it happens every day, becomes a miracle no longer. However, in truth, the fact that it happens frequently doesn't mitigate the greatness. When man falls from heaven, it's a nes of the first magnitude. And that's something that Hashem wants us to be thinking of always. It's a pity that we don't. Isn't it a good idea when you are walking in the street? Say like this, from now on, until the first telephone pole that is in the middle of the block, I'm going to think about the man. I'm going to imagine myself in the Midbar with the Am Yisroel, and when I get up in the morning, I see man on the floor outside. Then for the rest of the block, I'll think about how it must have been to taste that man. Ooh, wah! To eat lechem min hashamayim. What an experience it must have been. Heavenly food. And then you cross the street and you start a new block. Is one block enough to think about the man? You should walk at least two miles thinking about the man. But at least one block, you should do it. And if you want to become even greater, try it for a second block too. A wise person will fill his mind with these ideas. As much as he can, he will remind himself of this greatest nace in the history of the world. You know, some people say the parsha of the man every day after davening. Excellent. Very good. But it's not enough just to say words. You have to keep the picture, the tzur, of the man in your mind as much as possible. Now, tonight, we have been especially privileged with a fall of snow. The snowflakes just happened to have come tonight in order to give us a tzur of this great phenomenon of Hashem feeding the world. Now, as you gaze at the white blanket on the ground, you can see a faint resemblance to the man which fell in the days of our forefathers. And it's a good idea to make use of the sight of the beautiful snow blanket to think about that. Now, if you begin thinking about snow, you'll see that as much as man was a miracle, snow is also a nace of tremendous proportions. If you would put some if you would put some thought into it, you could come to see miracles in the snow, just like our forefathers saw when the man fell from the sky. It's only because we don't think about it. We don't study it. So the whole lesson is ignored. Maybe for the school children it's important. They want to have a day off to play in the snow. But for everyone else, what of it? It's just snow. But like I said earlier, you have to know that's how it was in the Midbar too. At first, they were excited. They were wild about it. And as the weeks went by, they got used to it. It's like snow. Snow is also man, but you get used to it. Every snowflake is a remarkable miracle in its own right. If you take one snowflake and look at it carefully, you'll be amazed at the symmetry of its crystalline form. And there are a number of different forms. Now today, we are not yet capable of explaining the utilitarian purpose of every single twist in the snowflake's outline. But we understand right away 
that one of the purposes of the forms taken by snow crystals is so that when they fall upon each other, they should remain loosely packed and fluffy. Instead of the snow coming down in simple forms that would easily amalgamate, they have bays and inlets, and they make them independent of each other to some extent. That's why, when even a big mass of snow falls, each snowflake maintains its identity to some extent, and the result of this is that a lot of air is imprisoned in the snow blanket. Imprisoned air! That's one of the big chastei Hashem that we have to study. David HaMelech said, Hanoten shele katzamer. Hashem gives us snow like wool. The question is, why compare snow to wool? Is it just because it looks like wool? And David is a poet, so he's going to make some poetry? No, that's not the way of Tehillim. David doesn't talk that way. Every word is full of secrets. Now in this world, we will never understand all of the secrets, but a little bit, superficially, we can understand. What's so special about wool? You know, when you walk in the street on a cold day, which material is it that keeps you warm? It's mostly wool. Wool is what keeps the world warm. Now, why is wool so effective? It's not because it has any thermal qualities. Wool is not any hotter than linen. If you stick a thermometer into the mass of wool, it won't be any hotter than if you stick a thermometer into a mass of linen. It's your own body that supplies the heat, only that the wool doesn't allow that heat to escape from your body. That's what the kinky hairs of the wool accomplishes. Between all the hairs, there is airspace that insulates. The wool creates an insulation barrier that traps your body heat between your body and the woolen garment. And it's that warm air that keeps you from freezing. That's why it's better, by the way, to have two thin blankets than one thick one. Two thin blankets have a tiny airspace in between them, which is very effective. If you suffer from chillblains on your feet in the wintertime, so instead of wearing one pair of thick socks, wear two thin socks so that the air in between them should keep you warm. It's good advice you're hearing now, and it's free of charge tonight. Somebody once gave me that advice, and all the rest of my life I've been doing that. When the cold weather comes, two pairs of socks. I used to walk a lot in the wintertime, and I suffered from frostbite on my feet. And then a man, an old Talmud Chacham, gave that advice. He said I should wear two pairs of socks. I don't know if he knew the principle that I'm telling you, but he understood that two pairs of socks are better than one. And that's what wool does. The twisted hair traps the air and creates an insulation barrier. But linen threads, on the other hand, are straight and they don't imprison any air. So the air travels back and forth and by convection the heat is carried away from your body and it's lost. So when David compares snow to wool, it's an exact comparison. Snow has the same qualities of wool because the shape of the snowflake makes the snow kinky, so to speak. It doesn't fall in a compact mass like pieces of ice. Instead, it falls in fluffy flakes. And a little bit of snow can make a very thick, air-filled covering. It falls loosely and remains fluffy like wool. And the air trapped between the snowflakes is a wonderful insulator. That's why when the snow falls upon the earth, it's like a woolen blanket that keeps the earth warm. You know the earth has to be kept warm, don't you? The earth is full of important things that could die from frost. There are roots that have to remain till next summer. 
Where does the grass come from? Do people plant grass? The grass grows from its own roots. It has seeds too, but it's mostly from roots, and these roots would perish in the frost. Not only grass, there are many perennials that have to send forth their roots again after the winter. All the strawberries and many other plants too, they grow from the roots that are right now in the earth. Also, all the seeds that fell into the earth in the last season, if not for the snow blanket, they would all perish. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu certainly had that in mind when he was Noten Shelek Katsamer, when he gave snow like wool. Actually, the snow is much more than people give it credit for. I received the news item not long ago about a town in Nevada, a town with a population of 10,000, declared an emergency. They had no water. The government declared a state of emergency, and they had to ship trucks with tanks of water to help the people. What happened? Snow hadn't fallen sufficiently that season. But it wasn't because of the lack of snow that they didn't have water. Because anyway, they got water from a reservoir upstream, a reservoir that was filled with water. But the local snow was vital because it acted as a blanket to prevent the underground pipes from freezing. Every year they depend on the snow blanket to keep their pipes insulated from the bitter cold. And because this year there was inadequate snow covering, the pipes froze and burst. There's another news item that one of our fans who listened to these tapes sent in to me. It said there that the farmers in South Dakota complained that this year they were wiped out. There was no snow covering for the earth, and the ground therefore became frozen four or five feet deep. And when the spring rains came, they couldn't penetrate the earth because the ground was so solidly frozen and the wheat crops went lost. They were wiped out entirely. But in addition to keeping the earth soft and warm, there are many important denizens residing in the soil who must be kept alive all winter because we need them for our existence. You know, the earthworms are what keep mankind going. They are essential to our existence. People despise the humble earthworm, but it's only thanks to his efforts that we are around today. If not for the earthworm, we wouldn't be here. We think that we plow, but the truth is that the earthworms are doing most of the plowing right beneath the surface. All winter long, many months before a farmer decides to yoke up his oxen or to take out his tractor to do any plowing, the earthworms are hard at work, turning over the earth. They suck it in through their mouths, and as it passes through their gut, the earthworm extracts some nourishment from it, whatever small food organisms exist in the earth, and then... When the earth is excreted by the earthworm, it's not only cleaned of, un- of certain unnecessary organisms, but it's fertilized too. The earth is now turned over and aerated and ready for planting. In addition, there are other important citizens, mishpichot adama, families of the earth, that the snow protects. There are the ants and the beetles and the centipedes, and all of them together are important, and they're doing a great job. We have to applaud them because they're keeping us alive. The ants and the beetles are digging through the earth constantly. They're allowing the air to penetrate the soil, which is very important for the growth of future vegetation. But how can these vital insects survive the frost winter? The answer is that our Kadosh Baruch Hu sends down a snow blanket. 
in the city, the sanitation department comes by with their trucks and they take it all away. But in the country, HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes care of everything and there the snow blankets remain. And that blanket keeps those bugs alive. If not for the blanket of snow, the earthworms would freeze. Earthworms freeze too. They don't live that far down in the soil. They live near the surface and therefore they need that blanket. The snow blanket keeps the earth warm. Actually, warm. Under the snow, it's like a little house. A snow house. It's always warmer inside under the snow than outside. It's nice and warm down there, like an Eskimo in his ice igloo. Then... When the spring comes around, we don't need the snow anymore. Now we need water. So the snow does us a big favor, and it turns into water. This wonderful blanket that has been keeping the earth warm all winter long, in the springtime, it turns into water, and that gives the earth a good drink. And that water turns into plants and food that feeds the world. Suppose you had such a blanket. It keeps you warm all night, and then in the morning when you get up and you don't need it anymore... So you eat up the blanket, an edible blanket, a chocolate blanket. In the morning you got up and ate it for breakfast. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That's still something missing to be invented. A disposable blanket that you can eat for breakfast. You may be laughing, but that's exactly what snow is. It keeps the earth warm all winter. And in the springtime, it melts and goes into the soil and it comes forth in the form of vegetation. And therefore, when you see snow spread out on the soil, you're seeing a nace, no less than the man. You're seeing food. That's exactly what it is. Like it says, Mashlich korcho kifitim. He throws his ice pieces like pieces of bread. Of course, if it was bread, it would be uncomfortable. With pieces of bread on the street, you'd have to watch your step, not to trample on the bread. But actually, that's what the snow is. It's bread. It's man. And therefore, you have to appreciate it when you see an icy street. Of course, on the city streets, it may seem like a nuisance, but it's not so. It's there for a very important reason. It's there to remind you of the miracle of the man, the lechem mina shamayim that we eat every day. And so... When snow comes down on the ground, instead of snarling, instead of growling, oh, it's that nasty weather again. Let's understand that this is icing on the cake. Snow is icing. Suppose you got a big cake, a block long or a mile long, and there is icing on top of it. The more, the better. And snow is the icing. Snow turns into all the good things. Because when you eat bread and delicious fruit in the springtime, you'll be doing so because of the snow that falls in the winter. Now we're not finished with the snow. The truth is that we are just beginning with the great subject of snow. But it's late now, and we must go back to the subject of the man. But we understand that the snowflakes happen to come tonight to give us a reminder of the great phenomenon of the food we eat and a reminder of the man as well. Now, just like snow, the man was white. The Gemara and Yuma tells us the reason for that. The man was white as a symbol that the man whitened the sins of the Amus royal. Now that has to be explained. The fact that it was white caused their sins to become white. How could the man cleanse them of their Averis? So we'll explain it as follows. The fundamental sin of mankind is to sink into the error that there's such a thing as nature. Nature is a Greek word that was made to conceal the fact of Hashem. 
You know, in Gemara language, there's no such word nature. It says there, Bidei Shamaim, by the hands of Hashem. Like Saris, Bidei Shamaim, and Smuka, Bidei Shamaim. Instead of saying a natural Saris, it's a Saris, Bidei Shamaim. Everything is Bidei Shamaim. That's the Torah language. There's no nature in the Gemara. Now we understand, of course, that Hashem bara Elohim Lasois. Hashem created the world to do in a way that seems to operate by itself. It seems natural. It all seems like cause and effect, but it's not so. Asher bara, Hashem made it. Kihu levado poel givuros. He himself does everything. And therefore, the greatest of all errors, the sin of sins, is to fall into the great error of forgetting about Hashem in this world. It's atheism, a form of not believing in Hashem. You know, the Rambam says that atheism is worse than Avoidazoro. And so, when people are observant, even if they keep the Torah, but if they forget that He is the one who does everything, they are missing out on their purpose in this world. When people begin to look at the world as operating according to nature, independently of Akadosh Borku, that's already atheism. And it's the major sin of sins, because from forgetting Hashem stems all misdeeds. Hashem Echad means that He is the one, the only one, that everything is done by Him. Even when it looks like nature is doing it, it's only Hashem doing it. That's why we say, Mashivaruach Umorida Geshem. He makes the wind blow and He makes the rain fall. The rain and the snow don't just fall. We don't look out the window and say, it's raining outside. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is making the rain come down. That's what we say. That's how you look at nature. Everything around us is really miracles upon miracles, only because it's so frequent. So we attribute it to nature. We forget about the Hashem Echad, who is doing everything. Actually, if we study everything around us, we would see that it's all marvels upon marvels we would see that snow and ice are actually miracles. We call it natural. But if man fell every day, we'd also say it's natural. And it wouldn't be cited as an example of Hashgacha, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Our purpose here is that we have to learn to divest ourselves of the hardened hearts of the materialists. And we have to think about these things. Why is it that the water becomes white and fluffy when it has to fall on the soil? And why in such intricate forms? How does it trap air? How does it keep the earth warm? Why doesn't it melt right away? How is it that the earthworms survive the bitter cold winter? Why is it that snow is a white color? It could have been blue-green, but white retards the sun rays and keeps the snow from melting. Of course, I'm only scratching the surface of the miracles. It's only the beginning. We didn't even begin to study the subject yet. And the more you study what Hashem is doing in this world, the more you'll see miracles. Miracles just as big as our forefathers saw in the Midbar. Why are all these miracles happening? And the answer is, therefore the purpose that we should see them and we should recognize that there is a Boide who made them. That's why the man fell for 40 years to drill into our heads that it's all from the Boide, that everything is really Lecha Min Hashemayim, and it is that knowledge of Hashem that whitens the sins of the Yisroel. And that's why we're supposed to remember the man. It's a reminder that what we see in this world is nothing but Hashem. And Hashem said to Moshe, 
Behold, I will mantir. I will rain down food to you from the heavens. Bishalach. This expression, mamtir, I shall rain down to you, is significant because it's a reminder that Hashem is the one who is causing everything. The man came, the man hudiacha, in order to make known to you, ki lo al halechem levado adam, that not by bread alone does man live, ki al kol moza pi Hashem adam. But by that which proceeds from the mouth of Hashem does man live. Devarim. Leman hudiacha, to make known to you, means to give you das, to give you the true knowledge that is available from remembering the man. And the greatest knowledge is summed up with these two words, that everything is Hashem Echad. Have a wonderful Shabbos.